Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. On today's episode, we welcome Michael F. Shine, founder and president of Microfame Media, speaker, writer, and author of The Hype Handbook. Michael's work has appeared in Fortune, Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Huffington Post, Psychology Today, and more. We hope you enjoy. Very, very happy today to have as our guest Michael Shine. Michael has recently authored a book called The Hype Handbook, which I'm really curious to hear more about that one. He's got an amazing story and a great background. So, Michael, welcome to The Action Catalyst. It is so great to be here, Dan. Thank you for having me. I'm really curious. You're a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in English, one of the top schools in the world. Was hype even a word back then? Uh, it, it, it's funny because there have always been two sides to my personality. So on one side, I worked hard in high school. I did all the right things in that way. On the other hand, I've always been really attracted to sort of outliers and mischief makers. So, you know, when I wasn't studying for school and doing the right thing there, I played in punk bands. All of my heroes at that time as a teenager and in college and, and what have you were people that some would call derelicts, you know, I, I mean, of the scumbags who created this thing called punk rock. And I've tried to reconcile those two sides of myself. And I think what I do now is sort of a reconciliation. So the word hype certainly existed, but it was it was considered, I think, for the most part, a negative thing. It's all hype. It's like you're blowing a bunch of hot air around something that isn't inherently good. But when I used to, for example, play in, in punk bands, I mean, we would hype a show up. So I think that was the beginning of this journey of thinking maybe hype isn't all bad and maybe marketing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Huh. I think that's cool. I wonder if you could share some of the other significant pivots and things that redirected you in, in ways that culminated with this conversation today. It's a great question because I've had a lot of them, perhaps more than many other people, which I didn't always really expect from my life. And I think that that was because of this dichotomy that we just talked about, right? So as you said, I went to Penn. And after studying really hard and working really hard and being really obsessed with getting in there, I got there. And if I'm being completely honest, the air sort of went out of my balloon because I had had this hyper fixation on this goal of getting into you know, an Ivy League school or a top school. I don't know who put that pressure on me. I put it on myself. And then I got there and it was kind of like, what now? Right. And I, I mean, I, I didn't really want to be involved in business. Um, so Wharton was very important at Penn, but I wasn't in Wharton. I wanted to be a writer and I took good classes at Penn, but there was nothing, there was no degree that was going to make me a successful writer. So I sort of, while I got okay grades and everything, good grades, I didn't have a lot of direction. The air was sort of out of my balloon. So then when I graduated, my parents always tell this story. We were at my graduation dinner and I told them I was going to go to New York and start a band. And um, they thought I was kidding. But that's what I did. I totally went the other direction. Talk about pivot. I, I went to New York City and I wanted to start this band. And I did. We were very theatrical. We were kind of punkish. 
And, um, you know, we didn't become rock stars, but but we did well. I mean, to everyone's surprise, we had a residency at a very popular club. We used to sell it out on a regular basis. And, and the way we would do that was by hyping things up. I mean, I, I would do all of these crazy antics and we would put up all kinds of crazy signs and do kinds of crazy pranks. But that thing didn't work out to make a living in a rock and roll band pretty tough. I mean, that's like saying I'm going to be an NBA player, right? So, you know, one thing led to another and I realized I had to make a living. So I got a job. I was there for eight years and I went from being this sort of artiste to being a corporate guy. It didn't start out that way. You know, the first two or three years I learned a lot and I became an adult. But by year eight, I stayed there out of fear. I was there because I was making good money, decent money. And, um, I was scared, you know, that, that I wouldn't be able to um, make it without that corporate bubble. I, I have an 11-year-old daughter, and when I found out she was on the way, I remember my position at the time was vice president of solution development, and, and I was working like a dog, and I still don't know what that job title means. And I remember the idea of saying to my daughter, I'm a vice president of solution development. I don't know. That just resonated really poorly with me. <laughs> so I left again. Um, and I became a uh, freelance uh, copywriter, like, like a marketing writer, because I could write and I knew there was opportunity there. And what happened was I had a very difficult time getting clients. I thought because I was a good writer, I, I would just get clients. I really struggled and I almost burned through all my savings. And then long story short, at the time I had become so corporate in my thinking. Hmm. And then I had this revelation. Why was it that when I was in the band, I was so good at getting a crowd of people on a Wednesday night into a show. And now I'm bad at marketing. And I realized the problem is marketing itself. When people think of marketing, they think of the tactics, they think about the tools. And what I realized was it's more about learning the mass psychology, what gets people worked up into a frenzy, what gets people to pay attention, and then you figure out what tools to use. So that was when I started calling it hype instead of marketing and everything changed. Of course, all this was plotted clearly in your mind when you had that graduation dinner with your parents, right? Every step of the way. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. Now, along the way, I know you've probably hit more than one brick wall too. You mentioned your, your savings were depleted. You have this child on the way, wondering what the heck to do. What advice could you give people when their career's been kind of trucking along decently well and then all of a sudden slam? I'll say a couple things off the top of my head. The fact of the matter is failing is really painful and hitting a wall really hurts and it's really sad. And sometimes it doesn't seem like there's a way out. So be willing to accept help. You know, I mean, we, we have this rugged individualism point of view and not everybody has the opportunity to have people help them, but we all have people in our lives who can help us in one way or another, whether it's through letting them crash in their spare bedroom for a while, introducing you to people that they know, whatever it is. But a lot of times I think we feel guilty about doing that. I think we feel like we have to do it on our own or else it's cheating. And I think no one has ever built something completely on their own. So I, I think that's the first thing. I think another thing is really be open to the side doors. You know, there are people in this world, and maybe I used to be one of them, to be honest, that they have a vision of what they want to do. And mm they will not diverge from that vision. So to use an exaggerated example, it's like saying, I want to be a potter. I'm going to make the greatest pottery ever. And if people don't buy my pottery, then I'm a total failure. Well, the chances of that happening require a lot of things. It requires luck. It requires all kinds of stuff to happen. But what if you said instead, I want to do something in the arts and I'm willing to open my eyes to see what happens. So you start out doing pottery 
But then people start asking you questions about how you set up your um, digital cart because you do it so well. And you hear that seven times. And instead of saying, oh, this is a waste of my time because it's not getting me close to being a professional potter, you say, huh, could I somehow make a living setting up people's back end to their artistic businesses? And what you'll find is that sometimes it takes you full circle. So before I wanted to play in bands, I wanted to write novels. And even during the band thing, I was the writer in the band. I'm not a great musician, but I'm, I'm a good songwriter and things like that. And so I now wrote a book and it's a book I'm very proud of. And it came out of all of those experiences to the place where now I have a book, you know, the hype and book that probably I never would have gotten to if I had taken the conventional route. So I think it's just very important to look for side doors and keep your eyes open. I've not heard that uh, illustration before the side doors. I think that's terrific because when you hit the brick wall, most of our eyes are facing forward and dealing with the headache. There may well be a side door and just being aware and alert is what it sounds like you're advising all of us to do. Tell us a bit more about the Hype Handbook. I mean, first of all, the title is amazing. Some of your bullet points are, are great. How would you characterize one or two of the lessons that you think are, are most useful for people? Let's, let's target people that are trying to hang their own shingle and trying to do something as an independent person, getting out of the corporate world, for example. Yeah. So the first thing, what's the book all about? So basically what happened is once I started tapping into my uh, mischievous side from my rock and roll past a little bit and having some results, the student in me came up and I started saying, well, what if I started instead of reading all of these business books and marketing books, what if I started studying these amazing self-promoters who never really thought of themselves as marketers, but who were much more effective than marketers? And what if I studied them, even if they were bad people, you know, some good people, some bad people and figured out, are there underlying principles that tie all of these effective attention getters together and can they be reapplied ethically? And that was super fun because some of these stories are extremely colorful. So everybody from cult leaders to Richard Branson, who is more of a hype artist than you might think, to, you know, honestly, religious prophets, to rock managers. And you'll see time and time again, the same principles strip the content out. The content can be horrible. It can be wonderful. It can be anything in between. But the underlying sort of principles of mass psychology, that understanding of mass psychology, you would see it repeat over and over again. And I said, you know what? There's like 12 umbrella principles that if you really can master them and you have a strong moral code, you can really get a lot further in life, you know, and in your business than you might think. So I sort of brought those together. It turns out the bad guys get this stuff naturally. So they don't need a book like this. It's the rest of us, the people with the best ideas, they need this stuff. I love what you're saying. P.T. Barnum always said, I don't care what they write about me, just spell my name right. <laughs> exactly. Well, please yeah. launch into one, one or two of these um, steps from the Hype Handbook. I think this would be super interesting. Well, I'm thinking about your your audience, your listenership, right? So, so one is something that I call create a secret society. So there's all this old talk about the old boys network, right? This concept that, you know, you can't really be successful in business unless you know people. And the only people who know people are people who already know people. They have, they're, they're from old money or, or, you know, they're in an old boys network as they used to call it and, and this and that and the other. And what I realized was that what, as I call them, hype artists are very, very good at is they don't accept that. They don't say to themselves, oh, I don't know anybody. They do very conscious activities to create a group of people who act beneath the surface for them who act underneath the scenes 
to accelerate their goals and accelerate their visibility and, and that sort of thing. So how do they do that? The basic print, and I call it create a secret society because this goes beyond networking. This is not just go to events and pass out cards and have dinners. This is a function of building a circle of mutual supporters, dare I say friends, who are constantly making things happen for each other. So how do they do that? What they do is they go under the principle of constantly looking for ways to give people things that are cheap for them to give up and very valuable for other people. And I don't just mean financially. So to give you an example from my, my own life, when I was pretty new in my business and didn't have much to give, one thing I did have was I got a column pretty early on for ink and I had to write a lot of articles. So it was very easy for me to do an article on anyone because I needed to do articles, right? I met this gentleman named Dave Lindsay, and he had quite literally from his garage started a business that was worth a half billion dollars in revenue. So that's very, very hard to do from your garage, right? And it was a very brass tax business, not a tech business. It was alarm systems. So very smart person, very person worth knowing. So I interviewed him. Turned out he was a very nice down to earth guy. And at the end, I just started chatting with him a little bit. He mentioned to me that he had just moved from Indianapolis to New York City. And one of the reasons he moved there was now that he wasn't as active in his business, he just loved live music. And they didn't have a great live music scene anywhere he'd lived in the Midwest, et cetera, et cetera. And now he's in New York City, but he didn't really know where to go to see live music. And I'm a big music fan, so I knew where to go see good live music. So this guy was a multi, 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 multi millionaire, could have bought a venue, I kept my ears open and it turned out he wanted someone to show him around. I said, I can do that. Guy became like my biggest mentor, one of my most valuable relationships. So I think it's very important to think of things that you can give, whether it's exposure, whether it's stroking someone's ego, whether it's helping their kids in some way that you can give up. It's cheap for you to give up and valuable to them. But if you can manage to form this circle around yourself, once you have something to promote, seven or eight well-placed people can make it seem like you had a grassroots explosion when really only just a few well-placed people are blowing you up. And that's very, that's something young people can do and should do. No question about that. It makes lots of sense. I remember um, I was messing around on Twitter. A friend of mine was, was hanging around while I was messing around on Twitter. And um, there's this guy named uh, Andrew Lou Goldham, who was the Rolling Stones first manager. I wrote about him in my book a lot because he was the quintessential hype man. He came up with their bad boy image. He came up with the phrase, would you let your daughter go with a Rolling Stone? You know, all, all this stuff. So I really, you know, thought this guy was cool and looked up to him. And I found out he was on Twitter and I had just read his biography and, and he's old now. I mean, compare, I mean, you, everyone thinks of him as a young guy, but he, you know, he was the Rolling Stones original manager. So I quoted a really funny, cool quote that he said from his book and tagged him in it. Now, this is a guy who really smart guy has done really cool stuff since, but once you've created the biggest band in the known universe, you don't get the kind of kudos that, you know, everything pales in comparison, right? So this is someone who has been up on the mountain who likes having exposure and maybe doesn't get it as much as he did in 1965, right? So I quoted him there and I gave him exposure and stroked his ego and showed how clever he was in a public forum. And he retweeted me. So I said, hey, I'm a big admirer of yours. Can I interview you for Forbes, which I was writing for at the time? And he said, 
I'll do you one better. I'm going to be in New York in two days. Will you meet me for breakfast? Mm. And what I realized was people have this mentality like, oh, how am I going to meet people? And we have the internet now, but the idea isn't just to go text someone and say, can I pick your brain? It's to give them something that they can't get elsewhere. If, if someone is known for business advice and you're on Twitter or Instagram and you notice them mention a sports team or a band that you're both into or a hobby, don't connect with them about business. Everyone is hitting them up about business. Connect with them about the hob, the obscure hobby. Everyone is a human being first and people forget that. That is uh, possibly the best nugget out of this whole thing. Everyone's a human being and people forget that. Particularly people that have hit a certain pinnacle of, of success and fame, they like to connect at different levels than what got them there. That's really cool. Wow, Michael, can you share one more of your principles for us? I, I think a great principle is one that I call perfect your packaging. That's different than what people normally think about that. This idea of like, make sure you have a professional logo and, and make sure you wear a suit and tie, you know, in a professional setting. What I mean by that is once you figure out what your public persona is, what you stand for and what your sort of contrarian point of view is or what have you, you need to weave that through every single thing you do. And it's not easy to do. So, for example, um, Andy Warhol, really important artist, but really good hype man. He, he was almost as famous for the publicity he was able to get as he was for anything else. So if you look at Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol always drew well. And he was a successful commercial illustrator in the 50s before he became a big fine artist in the 60s. But other than that, he had a lot going against him. So he had acne at a very young age and was balding at a very young age. Very, very underweight, skinny, very shy. They would have called his shyness social anxiety today. So he was an outsider in a lot of ways. So what many of us would do is we would try to hide that. What Andy Warhol did is he inverted every one of his insecurities and quote unquote weaknesses into a strength. Because there are a million people who have the same strengths as you. There are a million other good writers. But your foibles and your insecurities and your weaknesses, no one else has those, right? So he was had a thinning hairline early on. What do we know Andy Warhol for? His obviously fake silver wig. If you drew a, a caricature of Andy Warhol, you would have that silver wig. His shyness, his pathological shyness, people train, you know, if you're going to be successful, you need to learn how to talk to people, come out of your shell. You need to work on that. What Andy Warhol was famous for was people would interview him and the press once said, why do you paint cans of soup? He said, because I like soup. <laughs> and the press talked about that for ages. He couldn't have just meant that he liked soup. His skinniness, he invented a whole style of dress, you know, the striped shirts and the tight jeans that people still copy. So what I would do is think of all of your quirks and your weirdnesses and your insecurities, and then think, what is the nugget that you can flip into something interesting and then live that in everything you do? A lot of us are more one of a kind than we think. And if we can be very, very honest with ourselves about what our real quirks are, and then try to weave that through everything, present that in everything you do and anything that doesn't fit that, slowly discard it. Well, I think it's more than working, Michael. I'm going to read the High Pan book. I hope you do too. Thank you so much for sharing. And I'm feeling pretty inspired about this myself. Really thought-provoking from my end as well. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, 
Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.